Welcome back to the Money Markets and Macro Podcast, brought to you by Atticus Capital. I'm your host, Liam Hennessy. Now, over the past week, there has been quite a lot of news. In our last podcast, we discussed the bank failure in Silicon Valley Bank. There's also the failure of Signature Bank and the bailout in the sense of Credit Suisse. Now, there's a lot to dive into on the specifics of the bank failures themselves. Why did the bank, why did Silicon Valley Bank go under? Why did Signature Bank go under? Why was Credit Suisse having problems? I think the easiest way to understand this was written up by Macro Elf. We did do some coverage on that front, but it was relatively simple to figure out what's occurring here. When you're looking at a bank, uh, the thing is, I will say this, I'm not certain what has been going on with Signature Bank, if it was just the withdrawals of deposits, some of the exposures within Signature. I haven't been personally able to find as much information about Signature as I have been about Silicon Valley. And then there's also been a big history with Credit Suisse. The problems with Credit Suisse existed long before these recent bailouts and the refusal of their Saudi backers to continue backing them and the eventual stepping in of the Swiss National Bank or the Central Bank in, in, in their domestic home country. I think we all know what happened to Silicon Valley Bank. And there's questions to ask beyond simply the balance sheet analysis, which was relatively obvious. They had for a period of time, I mean, let's go through the history here. There was round about a 15 year period where the Federal Reserve maintained ZERP, right? The zero interest rate policy. So they had a large consortium of financial institutions, depository institutions, so on and so forth, buying up a bunch of bonds at very low rates. And as rates went up over the past year or so, the value of those bonds, well, as you can guess, began to fall. Rates go up, bond values, the par value of that bond goes down. Now that's typically not going to be a problem. You just hold that bond to maturity and you get your par value returned. And what depository institutions and financial institutions do in anticipation of higher rates, if they do get low yielding bonds, is by, well, diving into the derivatives market, right? You see a financial institution with maybe 100 billion in long-term bonds on their balance sheet and Whatever the ratio is of hedge to holdings, maybe, you know, you know, two to three, two thirds or a third or whatever that percentage is, depending on the institution, the uh, 
sophistication of their depositors and so on and so forth. There's a lot of different ratios and different metrics to analyze why and how much a certain institution will hedge their treasury position or their bond position, their fixed income positions. And you'll see very often that most of these larger financial institutions will have a certain amount invested in fixed assets, a certain amount of that hedged through you know, interest rate swaps, maybe FX or currency swaps or some sort of forward derivative that allows them to hedge the risks of higher rates, right? And that's a lot of what these institutions have been doing over the past year or so because they had a long period of time where they bought low interest bonds. And any rational, reasonable financial institution would have a risk department and they'd be saying, well, we have this certain exposure, we got to hedge that at risk. Obviously, at Silicon Valley Bank, that was not being done. There was the Macro Elf article that we did go through where they were suspiciously, <laughs> I'm saying suspiciously broadly, because it just, for a, a bank to have over $200 billion in invested assets, I believe it was maybe 230 203 something, you know, around 200 or more billion dollars invested, or at least in deposits. For a bank of that size to have over $90 billion invested in long-term bonds, and they, these were HTM securities, held in maturity securities, in the institution that I believe prior to the bank failing still had about five and a half years until maturity, right? $90 billion invested. Yet in 2021, they had only about $10 billion in interest rate swaps. The value of those swaps are only about $10 billion. But in 2022, the value of that hedge fell to $550 million, less than 1% of their invested assets. So that sets up a fairly clear example of either, I, I honestly, I can't tell you. I was having this discussion with one of my professors in my well, one of my courses, he was a former Federal Reserve employee. I believe he was on one of their boards, internal boards. I don't know if he was a governor. Or I'm not sure what he was doing. He was there for a long time, but he he was, I wanted to pick his brain, excuse me, because he has experience with, well, central banks and with banking. And he spent his life around this industry. And I think he was confused as well. I don't think he had really a good idea of why, you know, I asked him, you know, if, if a undergraduate student in finance, and this was, uh, we were in class and there's a little break between it. So I just sat around for a little bit and chatted with him. And I asked him, how is it possible that an undergrad student is able to look at the balance sheet and say, okay, you have 90 billion invested in fixed income. You only have a $10 billion interest rate swap hedge that fell to 22 or excuse me, that fell in 22. 2022 for that to 550 million. And well, I can figure that out, that that isn't a proper hedging strategy. That isn't a proper strategy to mitigate risks in any way. And he agreed. He, I don't think there was any real rational reason or response for why they would have such a small position. And maybe there is a reason because of the type of securities, the types of of fixed income securities they had invested in or the classification of those, maybe the HTM label, maybe it was some of the regulatory uh, 
issues in which they were trying to avoid being less than or having less than 250 million or sorry billion um, invested in deposits or under management obviously they have the over 250 would require additional regulatory oversight of the bank you know some stress tests i believe there was liquid capital something liquidity ratios was one i believe another one was um, some net term capital requirement which sort of feeds into the stress testing done by you know essential banks and federal government and obviously silicon valley bank sat right below that line and sort of glided through without having to do those stress tests which obviously looking back on today well, maybe they should have. But all of that is to say what occurred with Silicon Valley Bank was rather anomalous. It, it didn't necessarily impose a broader contagion risk. Because if you looked at the balance sheet of that bank itself, most other banks of their size, larger and even smaller, aren't that poorly managed and it, it did come down to poor management on on the bank's front and it also came down to the number of the depositors the size of the depositors right the depositors should have known not to put all of their you know liquidity i guess you could say into one bank obviously as a depositor if you have 30 million dollars or 50 million dollars even 10 to 15 you should divvy it up and you know put your, put that capital into a few banks or a couple of banks and then maybe invest the rest of that into some sort of you know moderately yielding fixed income security maybe a treasury bond or a note of some some type if you if you don't need that capital and you just want to you know return or get a return of maybe three and a half four percent you buy maybe five seven ten year treasuries that's Reasonable, I believe we can all agree on that. So that's Silicon Valley. The, the, the other big one over the past couple of weeks has been Credit Suisse. And, and Credit Suisse has been having problems for a very long time. I'm not the foremost expert on what has occurred with Credit Suisse. They are, I believe, have near and around a trillion dollars in you know assets, collateral, under management, liquidity, whatever it is. Um, big player in the dollar, global dollar market i.e. big player in the euro dollar market and they've been having many problems they lost i believe 10 billion dollars when archego went under in 2021 they've had to pay numerous fines for a variety of illicit activities uh, management hasn't been great i believe management even themselves have been doing some illicit activities to some certain extent obviously i won't go in and make accusatory statements of certain individuals just simply because I am not as well informed about Credit Suisse. And so you take a look at Credit Suisse's credit default swaps and they've been genuinely exploding. <laughs> I don't think there's any better way of explaining it. We can maybe find them here. I don't have those specifically pulled up, but they just came to mind as we were discussing Credit Suisse. Let's see if we can find it here. I believe uh, the last time I saw this was on George Gammon. George Gammon was covering these. Let's see if Bloomberg has any. Oh, are they going to pay him all me? I believe they will. <laughs> Thank you, Bloomberg. Very classic of you. 
Uh, there's maybe Markets Business, Markets Insider. Do they have paywalls? <laughs> I feel like they will. Uh, nobody posts charts. That's quite a sad state of affairs. But as we discuss further, we can look around and see if we can find them. What I wanted to cover today, typically we'll go through these podcasts and we'll give you a breakdown of what's occurring in the marketplace and take a look at maybe some of the current assets that are potentially struggling or not so much in that respect. Okay, I did find it here. Sorry for that big pause. I was looking for these. Um, but usually we start these podcasts out and we'll do a market review. We'll look at the S&P, we'll look at the NASDAQ, we'll look at the Dow, we'll look at the indexes, we'll look at some commodities, look at oil, uh, we'll look at the dollar, some precious metals. Uh, recently, we've also looked at the I believe it was some ETFs, some financials, the financial ETFs, I believe it's XLF, if I'm not mistaken, is the name of the ETF with financial institutions. Uh, and we can get to that today, but I wanted to cover this first. I wanted to cover the issues we're seeing in the banking system, primarily because they lead into what's occurring in the marketplace. And the marketplace, I will say this, is not really the best indicator and the best metric by which we should understand and view the entire, well, this entire crisis as we understand that the marketplace prices in a bunch of different things and there's a bunch of noise, we can say, when you're looking at the stock market specifically. The better place to look will obviously get to be, or that will obviously be the bond market and treasury market. And I know recently there have been a decent, or there has been a decent amount of coverage by uh, Jeffrey Snyder, Stephen Van Meter, George Gammon of the bond market. I know Jeffrey's been doing extensive analysis research on the bond market, specifically looking at Japan and Germany. I believe he went through a, a big list of, of European countries that are seeing similar problems in their bond markets as the U.S. is. And obviously the U.S. is a little more, more dynamic, so there's going to be a lot more volatility. But real quick, getting back to Credit Suisse, because I just wanted to mention this. And this was an article on Seeking Alpha posted March 16th discussing Credit Suisse. And we can just, <laughs> the chart here is, genuinely ridiculous there was a uh, so here's just the first paragraph and i'll try to explain the visuals of this chart because it's it's genuinely just it's mind-boggling in really some sense it says following the svb financial sivb collapse the banking confidence crisis spread to europe to attack the weakest link credit suisse a bank pressured by ongoing scandals and restructurings the situation looks bad. Shares of the Swiss lender crashed as much as 30% on Wednesday, while credit default swap spreads closed trading day at 994.5 basis points, up 79% for the day. The interim trading was much higher. It got to, I believe, I can't necessarily see that number here. Let's see if we can find a better picture. I mean, it, it's, it's genuinely crazy. 
uh, what we're seeing here in Credit Suisse. Let's see if we can open this image. So the high that the credit default swaps got for Credit Suisse was 2728.369. I mean, the peak of the credit default swap in Credit Suisse during the Lehman crisis in 2008 to 2009 was maybe 350. It didn't even get to 500 back in, in the first monetary crises, or as many would better understand it, the great financial crisis. And recently, starting in 2020, we did see the spreads and CDS get over 500 in two occasions, you know, 2020, 21, as a lot of the scandals and fines and archegos exasperated the issues at Credit Suisse. And then all of a sudden, they couldn't get the funding from the Saudi backers. Silicon Valley Bank blew up. Signature Bank went under, under conservatorship, I believe, is what occurred with uh, Signature. And these credit default swaps just exploded higher. I mean, it, it is genuinely amazing. And, and then they were bailed out, of course. Let's see if they cover that in this article. Mm -hmm. So here it does discuss the uh, Swiss National Bank, the SNB. We also remember we've discussed uh, the SNB before when we were talking about the dollar funding facility, right? We saw back, I believe in, oh, maybe October, November of last year. I'm Do not quote me on that because I may be wrong. But they started to get bitter bids in their their dollar funding facility, which is a lot like you can imagine it as primary credit here in the United States. You know, financial institutions and banks don't want to be seen using primary credit because there would be then a reverberation throughout the marketplace that there may be something wrong internally at this bank if they have been forced to go to the primary credit facility to uh, get essentially emergency liquidity is what that indicates. And we saw about 11 billion, I believe it was in the SNB of the last time something big went under. And then prior to that point, we did see some activity in 2020. That's fairly reasonable. You'd expect that to occur. I will read this. I haven't read this article yet, but it does seem like this breaks down what happened with Swiss National Bank and how they intervened, which I'm actually curious to understand as well. So Maybe we can go through this together and we can look at after this, there, there's something that I want to make note of and we'll, we'll hop into the yield curves. I have an Excel sheet prepared for us today that we kind of go through, we can kind of go through uh, and discuss a little bit of what we're seeing there because it is very interesting. There's a lot of volatility in the bond market and we'll get to that. So starting out here, it says, if this article were a normal coverage of bank stock, I gave you insights into Credit Suisse's balance sheet. However, investors should consider that since the last reporting reference, the balance sheet composition of the Swiss lender has likely changed to such a degree that an asset liability analysis would probably be quite outdated. So obviously this author has done previous articles on Credit Suisse. How many depositors does the bank or has the bank lost? To what extent has Credit Suisse lost access to the interbank funding market? That's a big one. How much has management de-risked its investment portfolio? Difficult to know, obviously. So there isn't a bunch of information. Maybe that has changed. If this is this article was posted two days ago, I'm recording this podcast on the 18th. But 
if the sole purpose of the balance sheet analysis is gaining an understanding of Credit Suisse's solvency and liquidity situation, then investors should consider that Credit Suisse adheres to rigorous benchmarks for capital funding and liquidity. Obviously, they're a very large financial institution and leverage criteria. By the end of 2022, Credit Suisse had maintained a CET1 ratio of 14.1%. And as of March 14th, the bank defends an average liquidity coverage ratio of close to 150%. Okay. Perhaps what sparked the confidence crisis for Credit Suisse on Wednesday was a statement by the Saudi National Bank that Credit Suisse investor does not consider providing additional capital. But although Saudi National Bank chairman confirmed that the red line for equity ownership is 9.9% and that the Saudi National Bank will not go above that. Chairman Amar al-Kudari also said that, emphasis added, to our knowledge, Credit Suisse is not looking for capital. And I don't think they will, honestly. They are very well capitalized. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Moreover, and this was the statement from the Saudi uh, bank chairman. Moreover, and most importantly, I would like to point out su uh, support from the Swiss National Bank. After connecting with Credit Suisse management, the SNB, this is Swiss National Bank, unlike the Saudi National Bank, <laughs> the two SNB is a difficult to decompose. The SNB argued that the strained situation for Credit Suisse is likely not to pose a systematic risk for Swiss financial markets, citing Credit Suisse's balance sheet strength, emphasis added, quote, the Swiss National Bank, SNB, and the Swiss Financial Market Supervisory Authority, FINMA, F-I-N-M-A, assert that the problems of certain banks in the USA do not pose a direct risk of contagion for the Swiss financial markets. The strict capital and liquidity requirements applicable to Swiss financial institutions ensure their stability. Credit Suisse meets the capital and liquidity requirements imposed on the systematically important banks, the GSIBs, the Global Systematically Important Banks or Financial Institutions, right? That's a big part of a lot of this. Then, a few hours later, about 2 a.m. local time in Zurich, the Swiss National Bank backed its statement with actions, announcing a, this is the Swiss currency, the CHF, $50 billion liquidity commitment to support Credit Suisse. So this is 50 billion, I can't remember the name of the, the Swiss currency, it's CHF. According to an early morning press release from Credit Suisse. Say here, Credit Suisse is taking decisive action to preemptively strengthen its liquidity by intending to exercise its option to borrow from the Swiss National Bank up to 50 billion in their currency under a covered loan facility, as well as a short-term liquidity facility, which are fully collateralized by high quality assets. The bank also announced that it is making a cash tender offer in relation to the 10 US dollar denominated senior debt securities for an aggregate consideration of up to $2.5 billion in US dollars. Concurrently, Credit Suisse is also announcing a separate cash tender offer in relation to four euro denominated senior debt securities for an aggregate consideration of up to 500 million euros. With that frame of reference, Credit Suisse credit default swap spreads, which ballooned on Wednesday, compressed sharply following the announcement, indicating that the market is buying the confidence. In any case, the SNB, likely the Swiss, 
has very likely the necessary resources to avoid the collapse of Credit Suisse, whether triggered by a bank run or any other factors, and the actions of Swiss central bankers hit on a firm commitment to doing so, if necessary. So that's interesting. I've actually, that's given me some interesting uh, insight here. This has been a good article. Please, I mean, if you'd like to, to read this article, we can link it in the the newsletter for next week. It's just titled, Can Credit Suisse Survive? Here is what you need to know. Posted by uh, Seeking Alpha, authored by Kavanaugh Research. So feel free to go through and read this. So that's interesting. It gives you a little bit of perspective that it sort of like what we mentioned with Silicon Valley Bank is there's, well, it's a little different, whereas Credit Suisse is well capitalized, actually has, you know, proper liquidity where Silicon didn't. It doesn't seem that the problems at SN or SVB are systemic. It doesn't seem currently that there is systemic problems at the moment in the banking sector because of SVB. But that doesn't necessarily translate to that there isn't a problem in the banking sector. There isn't a problem in the monetary system. There isn't a problem in the bond market, so on and so forth. You get the picture. Because seemingly there is. One of the things that I have been recently doing is covering the, just personally in my own time, on my own Excel spreadsheet, I've been looking at the rates of US Treasury bonds, right? And one would expect, obviously, with such vol you know, volatility occurring because of the bank failure, you would expect that volatility to extend into the bond market. And it certainly has. And as you would expect, bond yields have fallen significantly. One of the more concerning components of that has been the short end of the curve. Despite the ECB hiking, Despite expectations, the ECB, by the way, hiked 50 basis points. And despite the Federal Reserve likely going to hike, this is next week where they're going to hike, likely 25 basis points, uh, potentially another 25 on top of that. Regardless of all of that, rates across the board have been falling. They're falling rather significantly. And what's important to note is that rates on the shorter end of the curve are falling faster than rates on the far end of the curve, yet they're all falling consecutively. Now, Jeff Snyder has a better historical understanding of why that's important, why it is important and concerning that maybe the curve, the yield curve, looks like it's starting to normalize, but it's normalizing in the wrong direction. One would expect a healthy normalization of soft landing normalization be maybe the long-term end of the curve starts to rise faster than the short term and it starts to normalize via the back end being pushed up. But what we're seeing here is the entire curve being pushed down and the front end being pushed down at a heavier rate. And the explanation for this is twofold. There may be some systemic risk that we aren't seeing in the banking and monetary system where large asset managers, leverage funds, hedge funds, so on and so forth, are seeing that there is a significant risk imposed in the marketplace over the rather short term. And therefore, they're starting to buy up huge amounts of short-term debt. Whereas they're still buying long-term debt, but at a slower pace. 
or that might simply be short-term reactionary behavior where because of the bank failures, problems with Credit Suisse, investors, institutions, so on and so forth are just flooding into the market, ensuring that they pad up their hedge positions. They pad up their balance sheets. They put a bunch of liquidity on there. You get some higher rates and they really sort of lock in some returns and they lock in some bond buying. And therefore you'd see a significant drawdown or a significant fall in the rates of the short end of the curve. Lots of buying there. But despite all of this, and which doesn't necessarily have, I don't necessarily have the best explanation. We're seeing the inversion on the two tens start to compress. It looks like it's attempting to normalize here, but actually very, very volatile movement. You can get an idea of what we just mentioned here when you look at the two ten spread. So if we're simply just looking at the spread itself, back on the 7th of March, sorry, 8th of March, this was the heaviest inversion we've seen between the twos and the tens. They were inverted by 107 basis points. On the 17th, Friday of this week, they were only inverted by 42 basis points. Nearly a recovery of, of right around 60 basis points in the span of essentially one week. That's a huge amount of buying in the two-year bonds. And this hasn't been a normalization between the two bonds because the 10-year yield is rising, right? They're seeing buying in both, yet they're seeing a ton of buying at the short end of the curve in the two years. I mean, the two-year here is, is, if we can take a look at it, if we can find the rates, the two-year between when SVB went under and today, or Friday, excuse me, on the 6th. So I th believe they went under on the 10th. The two-year yield on the 6th of March was 4.89. It got up to a high of 5.05 on the 8th. On Friday, it fell to 3.8, a huge fall. Simultaneously, if we look back at the 8th for the 10-year, it was at 3.98. On the 17th, on Friday, it was 3.39. So you can see the discrepancy there. They're both falling, but the short end of the curve is falling to a significantly larger degree. And even the very short term, so the one month, two month, three month, are seeing a rather significant fall, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the same sort of position as what we're seeing in the two year. The two year is falling more significantly than even the shorter term rate. So if you take a look at maybe the three month, another very popular one, it was on the 8th, 5.06, it fell to 4.52 on the 17th, right? The same same type of, of scenario here. But again, it's for the two-year, it's just so significant. It fell from 5.05 to 3.81 in the span of around 10 days, nine days, really. So that's rather significant. But again, I can't necessarily explain exactly what that means because there can be a lot of reasons why individuals, institutions, and maybe even governments buy up a whole lot of two-year bonds. And maybe that's just the, the perfect hedging timeline. They say, we don't know what's going to happen. The largest risk is occurring within the next 24 months. The next 24 months we see as the most uncertain, therefore we're going to do the most buying in that bond. Let's lock in some of the rates, let's lock in some of the, the yield, and we can sit on that and hold this maturity. It doesn't lock us in for too long, and it's not too short of a time period where if something goes wrong in you know eight months, we didn't buy a six-month bond, and then 
we had to hold the maturity, sold it, and then have to reinvest it. You get the picture. But the next element here that I want to discuss here is, is the inversions. So when we're looking at inversions, you can chart it out in a couple of ways. You can look at the yield curve itself over a certain period of time and how it changes. You can look at specific rates, specific bond values. You can look at the, the yield itself, or you can look at the percent or the basis point difference between two bonds, between two, well, securities, I guess you could say. The very popular and the most common one you'll see is the twos and the tens. So essentially what you do, if you want to do this yourself, is you, oh my goodness, may have, uh, did, may have done a little something here to the, the charts, but essentially what you can do is you simply put the historic rate of two bonds, so maybe the 10 year and the two year, you can do this, you know, the six month and the five year, whatever it is, the one month and the eight month. And you can just put the rate I did on my chart going back to the first year, I believe that would be February 1st of 1990, all the way up until obviously the 17th of March, 2022, 2023, excuse me, sorry. And then the same for the 10 year, right? Put the yields on both of those. And then all you have to do is you take the 10 year minus the two year multiplied by a hundred. So you get a substantial number, you know, just as a percentage goes, you understand the deal. It's very simple mathematics. And you throw that together, you put it on a chart and you get to see that the inversion between the two, you get to see when the twos and the tens invert without having to look at two separate lines. And there's a number of times and occasions when this occurred, right? All the way back in 1990, March of 1990, we saw an inversion in, this would be 1998, I believe. We saw a very brief inversion, right? March of 1998, we saw a brief inversion. We saw that inversion again in February of 2020, or 2000, excuse me. We saw this again, another inversion occur, well, a couple of times here in January, February of 2005. We also saw an inversion in August of 2019, right? There, we had the repo problems in that time period as well. And then we did see the most recent one, the most recent inversion occur in April of 2022. That's when the twos and tens inverted in this cycle. But what's notable about this is that this is the deepest inversion we've seen in 30 years. The lowest point, as we just mentioned, was by, inverted by 107 basis points between the two. The last time we saw such a heavy inversion was 2000. The heaviest we saw in that time period was on April 7th, 2000, where the basis point spread between the twos and the tens was 52. The lowest the inversion got during the lead up to the great financial crisis was I believe here, my chart would like to work for me, was only about, well, it seems like the, uh, my Excel does not want to give me the proper values here. 
maybe let's call that 15, 20, and inverted by around 20 basis points. That was the deepest it got before the great financial, great monetary crisis of 2008-9. You could even say, you know, 789, so on and so forth. And then you see a little bit of volatility when we have the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, but obviously that didn't impact U.S. domestic markets and domestic bond markets in the same respect as it did the European side. So it's very significant to note that this is the deepest and heaviest inversion we've seen in, well, over 30 years, three decades, 30 years. One of the things that I wanted to note, though, was the way in which the inversions in the twos and the tens gives us an idea of how the marketplace reacts, how the stock market reacts. So if you take a look at the chart we just went over, and if you want to take a look at what I'm looking at as well, if you want to maybe watch along with what I'm seeing, I have it on my LinkedIn. You can find me at Liam Hennessy. I'll be associated with Atticus Capital on LinkedIn. You can head over there and you can take a look at the recent image post I published there where it's a chart of the inverted spread that I was just discussing uh, overlaid on the S&P 500. And one of the very interesting things that I didn't really understand and I wasn't aware of until I believe George Gaiman was discussing it when some bond investor, some very big time bond investor went on CNBC and was discussing this pattern. And George was discussing the pattern. And then I thought, well, I might as well look into this pattern as well. And what it is, is when the inversions between the tens and the twos troughs, it gets to the lowest point and then it begins to rise. So selling, 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 and then something happens. And then there's a flood of buying in the bond market. And typically what you see when that occurs is following a trough in the inversion, you'll see a sell-off in equities. More specifically, the S&P. I haven't done the same overlay with the Dow or the NASDAQ or the Russell, but I think the S&P is a good sort of starting point to where we can look at this. And maybe you can even get it to the point where you look at certain securities, equities, and so on and so forth themselves and see if there's any correlation there. But there's a very strong correlation here. Where we could see back in 2000, sort of in the middle of 2000, we saw a trough in the spread. And that occurred right around November of 2000. After the inversion troughed and bond buying started to grow rapidly. I mean, the, the, the bond buying in late 2000, mid 2000 to early 2001 was extraordinary. But following this period of time, the stock market fell significantly. I believe this one was on the order of 20 some odd percent. Same thing occurred in mid 2000s. So the inversions between the twos and the tens or the tens and the twos, however you want to put it, it got to its lowest point around December of 2006, right at the start of the year for 2007. 
as we got into January and February of 2007, we started to see a significant amount of bond buying. And then following this huge purchase cycle on September 3rd, 2008, that's when the market essentially collapsed. Same thing occurred if you even fast forward all the way to 2019. There was significant, there was a trough, I will say, there's a trough on around July 11th, 2019, a spike in bond buying in December of 2019, and then the market fell out of bed in February of 20. Very interesting correlation here again. And then what have we seen recently? Well, it looks like we've seen a trough in the inversion once again, right around December of 22. Big spike in bond buying, a, a just unbelievable spike. I believe this was the largest short-term spike in, in bond purchases. And the market is sitting at right around 3,600, 36, 39, right around that level. So my question was, at least in the post I had there, well, will the pattern repeat? And I've done a sort of backward look at each time this occurrence happened. And it's happened multiple times. I believe there was about five or six occurrences where the bond market tree or the bond market troughed, this inversion troughed, buying started to accelerate. And then following this trough into spike of buying, we saw the market sell off. One of the things about that was averaging it out. Actually, I believe there was seven occurrences where this happened since between 1990 and today, seven times this occurred. And I averaged it out and it was following these periods. I found there was about a 25% drawdown in the S&P itself. Broader equity markets, it'll change depending on the types of securities in those indexes. So my question is, well, is that going to be the case here? Is, are we going to see a potential 25% drawdown in the S&P now that we've seemingly seen a trough in the inversion and rapid bond buying? Maybe this isn't Silicon Valley Bank itself. Maybe this isn't Credit Suisse or Signature Bank themselves, but it's seemingly this pattern is once again presenting itself in the bond market. The only thing now really is to see whether or not the next phase of this cycle continues forward, where we see a ever increasing amount of bond purchasing and then the ensuing equity collapse. Well, I will be continuing to look into this as we go along. We have some more information on the economic front, some trade data, payroll data. I believe the last payroll report was about 300 above estimates, but significantly slowing from the 500 we had prior. Some trade data, we do have CPIs and PPIs and Chinese and European economic data. I know we've held off for a decent amount of time because we've been covering a lot of the banking issues 
and crises occurring in the United States and now seemingly some of it has spread to Europe, but obviously not to the same degree as we had once thought, or at least I had once thought, I will say. But I believe this is still remains one of the most important elements. Now, if you are a client of Atticus Capital, highly recommend you take a look at your emails this week. We will have some updates for you to go over. But with that being said, we will come back this week with a special report. There may be a reading or two this Thursday where we can dive into this a little better and in a little more detail. But until then, thank you all very much for listening. And we will see you all on the next one.